wanted to tell you all that I am so glad that I got to be a part of this again. It's always encouraging to be with you, uh, to spend time like this. But particularly this year, I think, after all that we've been through, it's just been good to be together. It's been good to think about heaven. Uh, I want to show you something in Scripture that, uh, for me personally, is something I come back to pretty often. Uh, I... I can get at times discouraged and sort of tired of trying to do the work that I do for the Lord. And whenever I need to be reminded of what it is that I'm doing and why I should be doing it and really get stirred up, I come back to this section in 2 Corinthians. Um, before I kind of talk about chapter 5, I want to put it in a context. I believe what we have going on, um, starting back in 2 Corinthians 2, look at verse uh, 12. 2 Corinthians 2.12 says, Now when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when a door was opened for me in the Lord, I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus my brother, but taking my leave of them, I went on to Macedonia. Uh, just think about what, what Paul said there, that when he was in Troas, there was a door open for him. Now, what you know about Paul is that normally if there was an open door for Paul, what was he going to do with that? He's going to go through it. He's going to take advantage of it. Um, pay attention to what he's saying. There was a chance in Troas that I was going to be able to share the gospel with a lot of people. But notice what happened to him in that verse. He couldn't, in verse 13, he couldn't find any rest in his spirit because he couldn't find Titus. Now, the bigger picture of this is he was waiting for Titus to come back and tell him what was happening with the Corinthians. And I believe the reason he's telling the Corinthians that he left Troas to go find Titus was so that the Corinthians would know how much he loved them. If Paul was willing to leave an open door in Troas to go find Titus just to find out about the Corinthians, then he's got to love the Corinthians. But the Corinthians had people telling them, Paul doesn't really love you. Paul doesn't care about you. So this was Paul's way of saying, I absolutely care about you. I left an open door to go find a guy just to report about you. Now, if you see those verses there, 2, 12, and 13, Skip in your Bible over to chapter 7, and look at verse 5. Chapter 7, verse 5. Or even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. But God who comforts the depressed comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by in you, as he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. What you have there in verse chapter 7, verse 5, <clears throat> is Paul picking up with the story that he was starting to tell over in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Um, he said, I left Troas, and then he doesn't bring up Macedonia or uh, where he was going to find Titus until chapter 7, verse 5. So what does that mean? It means that what we have from chapter 2, verse 14, through chapter 7, verse 4, is a parenthetical. It's like Paul telling the Corinthians, hey, I really love you, 
here's how I love you. I couldn't find Titus, and I had to go find Titus. But he pauses before he continues with that story. And he does something really interesting in chapter 3, chapters 3, 4, 5, and 6. And here's what I believe he does. He absolutely, like, rips his chest open and shows us his heart. Something that he doesn't do always in Scripture. If you want to understand what makes Paul tick, what he thought about, how he was such a great servant of God, this is the section where he pours his heart out to the Corinthians. He actually says that when he gets to chapter 6. He's like, my heart is open to you. I've told you everything about how I think, and I want you to open your heart with me so that we can be on the same page of things. So, what you have going on here, and why it's so precious to me, is you have the exposed heart of a true servant of God. Chapter 5 might be my favorite of all the things that he says in this parenthetical. Uh, Let me show you why. So go to chapter 5, look at verse 20. Look at the end of the chapter. And listen to what he says in verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Alright, so the way Paul refers to himself and his fellows is that they were ambassadors for Christ. And these ambassadors, he says, made appeals and begged people to be reconciled to God. Now, I know you believe that about Paul. That Paul was... A tremendous ambassador. He was constantly appealing and begging people to be reconciled. But here's my question. Do you ever wish that you could be like that? How many of you, deep down, you want, you want to share God with people? You want to talk to people? You want to appeal to them? You want to beg them to be reconciled? But you clam up. You become afraid. You... You have all kinds of reasons why it doesn't come out of your mouth, but you want to. Is anybody on the same page? Like, is that kind of how you feel? You want to be the kind of ambassador that he describes here, but you're not always there. That's my life. So whenever I'm struggling with that, this is the chapter I come back to. And I want to show you how Paul gets to this verse. In fact, in your Bible... Uh, for those of you that have the New American Standard, what's the first word of verse 20? Therefore. Some versions might say, now then, or so. But it's it's a word that links to whatever was above it. You know the rule in Bible study, if you see the word therefore, you have to go up above it to see what it's there for. That's the rule. So watch how this works. Go back a few verses to verse 17. In the New American Standard, what's the first word of verse 17? Therefore, your version might not say that. It may say something like, um, if anyone is in Christ, therefore, it might have the word so. But again, it's the same idea, therefore. Now go back to verse 16. In the New American Standard, it's the word therefore. If you go back to verse 11, it's the word therefore. If you go back to verse 9, it's the word therefore. If you go back to verse 6, 
It's the word therefore. You ever had a friend like this? Like, the friend starts talking, and you kind of miss what they say at the beginning, and they're like, then this, and then this, and therefore this, and therefore this, and therefore this. These are like the smart people like Luke who are scientific, and they like give you a premise, and you miss the premise, and then they're like, therefore this, and therefore this, and therefore this, and they come up with this like great conclusion, and you're like, I missed it, dude, somewhere in like the ten therefores, or you were building on the therefores. That's actually what's happening in this chapter. Paul starts with something that leads him to a therefore conclusion. Therefore this, therefore this, therefore this. And finally when he gets to verse 20 he says, therefore we're ambassadors. So let's go on the journey with him through this chapter. What's the premise and what are the therefores that get us to being the kind of ambassadors we should be? So, back to the beginning of the chapter, look at verse 1. Chapter 5, verse 1 says, For we know. Now before I read any further, he does not say we hope. He doesn't say we guess. He doesn't say we wish. He says we know. This is something that Paul had as a foundational truth in his life. Here's what he knew. That if our earthly tent which is our house, is torn down. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed. So that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. Now, what did Paul just say he knew? Paul said, we know that we are eternal beings in a temporary house. This body that we live in is eventually going to wear out. It could be killed by somebody who's against us. But we ought not fear those who can destroy the body. And what Paul kind of says in these first five verses is, the knowledge that he had was that his home wasn't here. That God's got something better prepared. That the whole purpose of God, look at verse five, the eternal purpose of God was that one day we would be further clothed in immortal garments. Or we would, some song, that song we sing, we would be immortally arrayed. Alright, now, track with me on this. You ever read the book of Acts, and you watch Paul go from city to city to city, and you start thinking, he is a madman. Everywhere he goes, people throw rocks at him. And they, like, hit him in the face, and break up his nose, and, like, leave him bleeding on the side of the road. They actually drug him out of a city one time thinking he was dead. Remember that? You guys remember what happened when he revived? He ran away, right? No, he went back into the same city. How could somebody go to a new city where they were going to arrest him or beat him or try to kill him and then just keep going back to the same city? How could anybody do that? Here's his premise. 
the worst thing they could do to me is let me out of my tent early. Because this is just a temporary place for me to live. Now, this business about going home and understanding that heaven is our home, it does a lot of things for Christians, but I'll tell you what it really does, is it makes the best evangelists. It makes the best ambassadors. Because if you go around having that attitude every day in your life, uh, here's how C.S. Lewis said it. Since Luke's been quoting C.S. Lewis, uh, I'm going to go ahead and quote him. C.S. Lewis one time said, you don't have a soul. Period. You are a soul. Period. You have a body. Think about those three sentences for a minute. You don't have a soul. You are a soul. You have a body. Just for a little while. But we Christians, we so often talk about our soul as if it's not us. Hey, how's your spiritual life? As if there's any other kind of life. How's your soul doing? It's not a thing that I have. It's who I am. And Paul believed this. He knew this. So, if this was his premise, if this was what was on his mind everywhere he went, what's his first therefore? Go down to verse 6. Therefore... Being always of good courage, and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight, we are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. So, what's his first conclusion? Because he knew that, he was of good, what? What's your word? Courage. What's your biggest problem with evangelism. Is it that there's nobody to talk to? Now, there's plenty of people to talk to. You know what my biggest problem is? Fear. I'm just always afraid to talk to people. I lack courage. So pay close attention. You want to know the heart of Paul? Where did his courage come from? His courage came from verses 1 through 5. I know where my home is. I know who I am. I know what God's got prepared, so I've got courage. He says it twice, verse 6 and verse 8. And he actually had a preference. The preference was that someday he'd be out of this body that was causing him all kinds of trouble and be at home with God. You know what some of those people he preached to could do? They could get him there earlier. God didn't let him. They kept trying to kill him, but God wouldn't let him die. They kept trying to like throw him away, but God would 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 protect him. But he had courage. So, think about that just for a bit. If you wrestle with courage, you can try to play all kinds of tricks with your mind to become more courageous, but I'll suggest to you the very best way to be motivated to be courageous is to think like Paul. You are not at home in this body. But someday you will be at home in the body that God has prepared for you. So be courageous. Look at the next, therefore, down in verse 9. Verse 9 says, Therefore we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that the one, uh, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds 
in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Alright, so if the first, therefore, was courage, the second, therefore, in verse 9, is about what? What does your version say? Ambition. Hey, young people. Have you ever, have your parents or anybody ever told you you lack ambition? That might actually be a compliment, because what some people mean by that is, how come you don't care to go make like a million dollars like everybody else? Everybody else is out there to be ambitious. James chapter 3 says that that's worldly wisdom, is that people are selfishly ambitious. And it's very powerful to have ambition. Uh, by the way, girls, if you ever bring a guy home to your parents and they say, well, he seems to lack ambition because he seems like a bum, you can be like, you know, James says that selfish ambition to want to get ahead in the world. Um, there's a different kind of ambition, though, that the Christian has. And it's not about money, it's not about fame, it's not about earthly things. What is it here? We make it our ambition to please God. Now, young people, that's an ambition you should have. However you wrestle with grades, however you wrestle with, like, studying, whatever troubles you have with being a lazy kid, which you shouldn't be, you shouldn't be lazy about wanting to please God. But I've, I've wrestled with this in my own life. What would other people say my ambition is if I asked them? What's Andy's ambition? It might not be this. But if you want it to be your ambition, go back to the premise. What's the premise of this chapter? I know where my home is. I know that someday I'm going to be absent from this body and I'm going to stand in front of God. Therefore, I'm courageous. And therefore, I'm ambitious. Those are two fantastic things to be as a Christian. Now, would you guys agree that verses 1 through 9 are actually just what Christianity is about? We know that we don't belong here. This world's not our home. We're just a passing through. Our treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. So we courageously and ambitiously try to please God in our life. Isn't that Christianity? Isn't that what you're trying to do? But I want you to notice there's a whole rest of the chapter. Most Christians stop right there at verse 9. And they're like, look, I'm trying to be courageous and please God. I'm trying to be courageous and please God. I'm trying to be courageous and please God. Great. But read verse 10. Paul changes the pronouns a little bit. And he says, we must all appear. He doesn't just say, I'm going to appear before God. He says, we all have to appear before God. Do you know, if you start thinking like that, it's not just you that's going to appear before God, but every other human being is going to appear before God. It's going to lead you to another therefore moment. So look at verse 11. What's verse 11? Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Now notice, Paul doesn't say, knowing the fear of the Lord, I persuade myself to live a holy life. He already said that in verses 1 through 9. Now Paul is becoming the evangelist. If I see people that are going to stand before the judgment seat of God, somebody who's going to walk up to the doorstep of what should be their eternal home and have to talk to the father of that house and be judged for everything they did, it's going to stir me up to want to persuade people. 
Why? Verses 1 through 5. We're not just the only ones who are souls in a body that's temporary. Every other person is. I'm just curious. Do any of you here know Eric Borlaug? Does anybody know Eric Borlaug? A couple of you. What do you guys think of him? He encouraging to you? Eric was converted up in Minnesota a few years ago. And from the moment he understood God's will, he wouldn't shut up. In fact, he did like things that I would never do. And I kept being like, Eric, stop. But it kept working. Like we would go into a coffee shop, he'd see somebody reading their Bible, and I have like all these smooth ways to try to get him into a conversation. And Eric would walk up to him and be like, hey, you read your Bible? What do you think about baptism? And I'd be like, Eric, stop. (laughs) And like 10 minutes later, he was sharing the gospel with them, and many of these people became Christians. He's extraordinarily courageous and ambitious and persuasive. And I asked him one time, Eric, how do you do that? Here was his answer. He said, every person that I ever look at, I think about them standing in judgment before God. And it scares me. You know what he was saying? Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade people. Do you want to have that attitude? I want to. It comes down to one premise. One piece of knowledge. It's verses 1 through 5. We know that we are living in an earthly tent, but destined for an eternal home. If we know that, we can become persuasive. Keep reading. But we are manifest to God, and I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. We are not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us. So that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. For we, if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but him who died and rose again on their behalf. Now I'm not going to say everything about that. That's a, parenthetical within a parenthetical he's now stopping in his argument to talk to the corinthians and he's like corinthians listen what i'm saying right now is not me trying to brag or trying to beat you up or anything like that i'm just trying to help you understand who i am it's essentially what he's saying but he lets us in on another secret you see there in verse 14 what compelled him what was his compulsion to talk to other people it was the love of christ Two things. Verse 11, the fear of God. And verse 14, the love of Christ. Look, if you're struggling to talk to people because you don't understand the fear of God, then spend more time thinking about the love of Christ and what they can become because of Christ. And if you know that Christ can change them, then it might help you speak up. But if that's not working, you can't envision them being any better because of the love of Christ, then go back to the fear of God. And be afraid that one day they're going to have to answer to God. And if you can't find motivation in the fear of God and the love of Christ, then you need to go back to the beginning. Someday, you'll leave this earthly tent, and you'll stand before God in judgment. 
as will I, and will answer for everything that we did. And if we don't know where our home is, not only will we not please God, we'll never persuade anybody. Keep reading. Verse 16 is probably, in my mind, one of the most profound therefores in the text. Listen to what he says in verse 16. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Alright, go back to verse 16 when he says, Therefore we recognize no one according to the flesh. What does he mean? If you don't recognize someone according to the flesh, how do you recognize them? What's your only other option? He recognized them according to the Spirit. You know, when I look at people, especially people who don't look like me, because I look pretty normal, I think. You know, they got, like, tattoos all over their body. They've got piercings, which, by the way, is becoming more common. It's more uncommon to see somebody with not that stuff. But here's what happens. We see people and we think, well, look at that person. And if they've got other problems, immodesty, language, drug use, whatever. That's what we see. And we recoil from it, we move away from it. Like I said yesterday, we feel sorry for ourselves that we have to be around it. Or we could do this other thing. We could see people according to their spirit. Who they are in their essence. Made in the image of God. One for whom Christ died. Or as this goes on to say, someone who can be a new creature can be renovated to the image of the one who created them. Wouldn't that be neat if you could do that? Wouldn't it be neat to see what other people's spirits look like? Their souls? There was a commercial a while back where I don't even remember what it was for. I just remember the commercial. But it followed people around with a camera and they had different, like, expressions on their face. And sometimes they were, like, ignoring people, or sometimes they were sort of angry and honking at somebody. But above their head, there appeared, like, a box that said what was going on in their heart, like what was going on in their life. And it made you realize that sometimes people are doing or acting in ways because of things that are deeper going, deeper inside. Stephen Covey tells a pretty powerful story about this in The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. He tells the story of being on a, a, plane, a train, I think, a subway train. And um, while he's sitting there, this man got on, and he had a couple of little kids. And the kids started being extraordinarily disruptive, climbing over things, bothering people, making noise. And everyone on the train car was getting really upset. And kept looking at the man, kind of making noises, trying to get his attention. And he was just staring out the window, completely ignoring, you know, his spawn of Satan's children, like, in their mind. 
And somebody finally tapped him on the shoulder and said, Hey, do something about your kids. And the man kind of looked around, confused, and he said, Oh, I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry. He said, We're coming home from the hospital where their mother just died. Stephen Covey says, The moment that everybody understood, the the mood changed. Everyone started helping with the kids. Everyone was trying to be understanding. What was the difference? You know what the difference was? They didn't recognize these three according to the flesh anymore. They saw the spiritual, emotional, psychological difficulties of life. And it changed their tune, changed their tone. Do you think we could get there? Like, really? Do you think we could rise above all the political nonsense? Do you think a Christian could get there? And not participate in all the fights and all the names and all the nonsense that goes on because we're trying to, we think we're trying to build a better home here. And then we could see people the way that Paul did Because of one thing, he knew where home was. He knew who he was. That brings us back to our last therefore, verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So, I'll leave you with this. When was the last time you begged anybody? That's big. When was the last time you appealed to somebody? Appealing to somebody is different than begging somebody. To appeal to them and say, hey, you really should think about this. Consider this. Begging them is like getting down on your knees with tears in your eyes and saying, please, please change your life. In fact, did you notice back up there in verse um, 12, or no, verse 13, he said, if we're beside ourselves, it's for God. If we're of sound mind, it's for you. Sometimes people thought Paul was crazy because he was trying to win them over. My maternal grandmother, my mom's mom, died after my mom. So my mom died when she was 42. And my grandmother always hated that my mother had left Catholicism to be a Christian. It always troubled her. She was always talking about it, talking against it. But when my mother died at 42, she was at peace and joyful and knew where her home was, and she died well. My grandmother was getting close to death, and I went to visit her. Um, We weren't really close. There'd always been kind of a wedge in our families because of the history of that. But when I got to her house, she was sitting in the backyard, and I went back there, and she saw me and recognized me. It had been a while since I'd seen her. And she started to cry, and we hugged, and we sat down, and I said, Grandma, how are you doing? And she cried harder, and she said, I'm not doing well. She said, I'm not ready. I'm not ready to die. I'm scared. I don't know what's next. And I thought, this is my moment, you know? Like, this woman who'd always 
said that she understood faith and she thought she had all the answers. She's an old woman getting ready to die and she's scared to death about what's next. So I looked at her and I said, Grandma, you don't have to be afraid. Like the Bible tells us how we can be sure. Let me go grab my Bible out of the car and we can talk about it. Please, Grandma, you don't have to fear death. And as soon as I said that, she like squeezed the tears back. She hardened up her face and she said, no, no, I don't want to talk about it. So this was my beg. I said, please, Grandma, please, let's talk about it. She looked at me and she said, no, I'm just an old woman being an old woman. I don't want to talk about it. So I stopped talking about it. And she died. And God will judge her. If I could go back, let me tell you what I'd do different. When she got stubborn and said no, I'd have been more stubborn. And I might have yelled at her. Listen, Grandma, I'm not going to let you shut me down. I'm your grandson. You need to see Mom again. You can't quit like this. I've got something to tell you. But I didn't do that. I didn't beg. I wasn't beside myself. I just did the proper thing, you know? And I just don't want to do that anymore. I want to be the kind of person who is so excited about the love of God and so afraid of the fear of God that I can beg any person to be reconciled to God. I hope that helps you. Thanks for your attention.